Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. And I've realised that this episode is following a pattern that has been repeated over and over again this summer. There's a gigantic blockbuster at the cinema, in this case Jurassic World Dominion, which I have absolutely no interest in seeing, Therefore, nothing else gets released, apart from one or two very small films. So I have a cinematic review for you, as well as plenty of things I managed to catch up with on streaming. Being alternative programming to Jurassic World Dominion, we have the strange little British film, All My Friends Hate Me. And I would just remind you that the queer film Swan Song is also technically out this week, but here in Bath there's only one screening later in the week, so keep your eyes peeled for that if that might appeal to you. But in any case, the one cinematic film this week is All My Friends Hate Me. Then on Sky Cinema, we have two original films being released. The Gerard Butler thriller Last Seen Alive, and the curious cloning movie, Duel. I also found time to tick off one of the many streaming films I have on my list, the biopic of an NFL quarterback, American Underdog, and I have finally watched the film that I was very, very interested in and was released onto Amazon Prime Video, Emergency. So that's a total of five films for you in this particular episode. And without further ado, let's get on with today's review. Big Screen All My Friends Hate Me is the feature-length debut of Andrew Gaynord, who has done a lot of comedic television work in the past, including being a regular collaborator with the stand-up comedy duo Totally Tom, made up of Tom Palmer and Tom Stoughton, who write the script for this film. And Tom Stoughton also stars in the film as Pete, who is invited to celebrate his 31st birthday in the country with some of his friends from university. Pete comes from a working-class background, and his four friends are all definitely of the upper crust. The manor house they are spending this birthday weekend in is owned by the father of one of his university friends. His girlfriend, Charlie Clive, will be joining him in a couple of days, but until then, he goes to the countryside on his own, and it gets a little bit with Null and I, with country folk being disturbing and creepy, but eventually he finds his way to his house, 
and nobody's there. After hours of waiting, his friends Joshua Maguire, Georgina Campbell, Graham Dixon, and his ex-girlfriend Antonia Clark show up and saying, what happened? We left you a note saying we were down in the pub, which Tom Stoughton doesn't necessarily believe. And this is the first of many hints that Tom Stoughton's friends might not actually have his best interests at heart. There's a layer of cruelty, even juvenile humour, which is going on here, and comparing where you are now in your life to where you were then when you were at university becomes a very big part of this scenario. So is Tom Stoughton being paranoid? Do his friends actually like him? And do they have a separate agenda to invite him down for this 31st birthday, particularly when also randomly invited to the party is Dustin Demery Burns, a local man and seemingly the latest iteration of something these friends used to do at university of having what they called a wild card, just invite a random person home to spend some time with them and subtly mock them and make fun of them. This seems to be what's going on here, but is this something that Tom Stoughton still wants to do? And does Dustin Demery Burns have his own agenda as well? So, a weekend of awkwardness, paranoia, cruelty, humour, black humour at that, how will Tom Stoughton survive and how will he perceive himself and his friends after this weekend? This film has been getting mostly positive reviews. It's got a rating of 6 on IMDb. And on Rotten Tomatoes, the critic score is 88%, and the audience score is actually 60%. So, more people have liked it than not, but there are an awful lot of one-star reviews out there. Because this film has been described as a comedy horror, which it absolutely isn't. And this is one of the unfortunate films which basically slips through the cracks because it does not easily fit into any genre. I can easily see that the people who had to market this film said well our best option is to market it as a comedy horror but if you go in expecting that that's not what you're going to get. What we have here is a lot of psychological tension, a lot of awkwardness a lot of paranoia. I think a great one-line summation of All My Friends Hate Me is this is Peter's friends with added gaslighting and class struggle. It doesn't easily fit into any genre. The more time we spend with Tom Stout and the more we get to realise that he is different to his old friends. 
not only is he working class and they are upper class, he phones his girlfriend, Charlie Clive, at a certain point and says, I thought they would have grown up more. There's a lot of quote-unquote humour in this gathering, which is largely based on cruelty. Being mean and confrontational and then laughing it off as a joke. And this concept of the wild card that they talk about, you know, they used to do this, you know, used to bring random people back from the pub, like this guy Dustin Demery Burns seems to have done, you know, for the next generation. And it's very much an idea of mockery. It kind of has a similar vibe to the French film Le Diner du Camp, which was released in America as The Dinner Game and was remade as Dinner for Schmucks. The idea of bringing someone along to a party specifically to mock them. And that seems to be what is going on here. And even a question in my mind, and I think perhaps this was deliberate, a question in my mind was these four rich people somehow ended up hanging out with this working-class person, Tom Stoughton. So was he originally a wildcard who just happened to stick around because he formed a bond, formed a relationship with one of the women, Antonia Clark? How did this relationship start? And when you put it in those terms, what is Tom Stoughton doing here? I mean, looking back on your past... And reevaluating who you were then, who you are now, and how things have changed, how things are changing, and the self perception you have of yourself now and yourself then, and how different it is, and how uncomfortable it is to look back and think, oh, I was a bit of a dick, wasn't I? And even evaluating the position you find yourself in now. I mean, Tom Stoughton works in a refugee camp, which is where he met his girlfriend, Charlie Clive. And that's something they mutually have together. But Tom Stoughton makes absolutely sure that in every possible conversation, he brings up the fact he works in a refugee camp. And there's certain points where these upper-class people just outright say, you're not actually being very much fun, are you? And you get the impression that Tom Stoughton, even today, and probably definitely back in university, he was only around for, quote-unquote, fun. And that includes being incredibly cruel and playing it off as a joke. I mean, saying something biting and hard and difficult to hear is cruel whether you intend it as a joke or not. And there's certain points in this film where you really do not know whether it's intended as a joke. And even if it is intended as a joke, it's not a very good joke. It's cruel, it's uncomfortable, it's awkward. And that includes the final scene. I think the ambiguity of the final scene of this film is pitched perfectly, in my opinion, because something is sad and, Percy speaking, I had no idea whether it was supposed to be taken seriously or not. And that was pitch perfect, in my opinion. But this idea of cruelty as humour, 
and how comfortable you were with it then and how comfortable you are now. Evaluating and reevaluating your life. Looking back on who you used to be and conflating and conflicting with who you are now. Understanding that you are a different person now than you were then. In good ways and bad ways, you are different to who you were then. And being forced to confront that, it brings up uncomfortable questions or has the potential to bring up uncomfortable questions. And, and yes, this is a film about awkwardness. It's a film about nostalgia. It's a film about evaluating your life. I mean, as you know, any reunion after at least five years, these people haven't seen each other, or at least Tom Stoughton hasn't seen these four people for at least five years. So seeing how you now interact with these people, particularly when you have this extra random element of Dustin Demery Burns, the local who they just randomly picked up in the pub, and how Dustin Demery Burns interacts with Tom Stoughton, and does he have his own agenda? Is he a menacing figure, or is he just the jester that they've got for this particular weekend? It's interesting to see that. It's interesting to evaluate that. And, yeah, it is definitely a film that is very, very difficult to market. But if you go into it expecting a comedy horror or a comedy or a horror, that's not exactly what you get. But how to describe simply and quickly what genre this film is even in? I really don't know. So, yeah, it, it's definitely a film which the marketing might well have hurt it. But if anything I've been talking about sounds like something you might appreciate, then yeah, I think All My Friends Hate Me is an interesting, quirky little film which does raise some interesting questions and is well acted all around. I think the gradual tension, the gradual building menace, that Tom Stoughton feels, and you know how justified is this awkwardness, is this menace? It's quite interesting. So yeah, for me, All My Friends Hate Me is an interesting, quirky film, and for me, it's a pretty high meh. Home movies. There were a couple of films that got released onto Sky Cinema in the past couple of weeks. The first of which I saw was Last Seen Alive. A Gerard Butler starring action movie. Directed by Brian Goodman. Who is mostly known as an actor. He was the lieutenant on the TV show Rosalian Isles, for example. But has a couple of these low-budget action movies in his background as a director. And this one definitely struck me as a low-budget action movie. It did intrigue me because it was on Sky Cinema, I can just watch it for free, but also because it seemed to have some similarities to the Dutch film The Vanishing, which has been on my mind recently for reasons which will become apparent on my video channel but i saw the trailer for this i thought oh that looks a little bit like the vanishing i may as well watch it see if there's anything to be compared and contrasted because similarly to the vanishing this is the story of gerard butler 
who is on a car journey with his wife, Jamie Alexander, and Jamie Alexander disappears when they stop at a gas station. And that's basically the, the initial setup of The Vanishing, although that's basically as far as the comparisons go. Because in this particular case, Gerard Butler and Jamie Alexander are in the process of separating. Gerard Butler is transporting Jamie Alexander to her parents' house in Georgia so she can stay with them and work, figure out what comes next in their separation. This is something that Gerard Butler does not want. He is perfectly happy in his marriage to Jamie Alexander and doesn't know why she's so dissatisfied. So that puts an extra layer on things when Jamie Alexander does disappear. And the absolute panic that Gerard Butler shows when Jamie Alexander disappears sets off red flags, and in my opinion, legitimately sets off red flags when a police detective, Russell Hornsby, gets involved. So can Russell Hornsby figure out where Jamie Alexander is? Can Russell Hornsby dismiss Gerard Butler as a suspect because he's acting very, very suspiciously. And can Jamie Alexander be rescued? This is a low-budget Gerard Butler action movie, so what do you think? I mean, I knew what type of film this was, and I knew I was in trouble from the very, very first scene. The very first scene of this movie is a police detective played by Russell Hornsby beating up a handcuffed suspect in the back of a police car, saying, where is she? I know you took her. Where is she? And then a current comes up saying eight hours earlier, and we go back to this awkward car journey between Gerard Butler and Jamie Alexander. So you know this is going to be taking place over the course of one day. And you also know that essentially we're dealing with corrupt cops. These are the kinds of cops that beat up suspects with no compunction. Or rather, I think this is the type of film where those kinds of characters exist. It's okay to beat up a suspect. The fact that at one point Gerard Butler walks into a police station with evidence he has beaten out of somebody and the police don't bat an eyelid, they just use the evidence, don't care at all where it's come from, and Gerard Butler is allowed to stay in the room as this evidence is being processed. The police procedural aspects of this film are utterly, utterly ludicrous. The mechanics of the plot are utterly ludicrous. Gerard Butler panics far, far too quickly, in my opinion, thinking that something is drastically wrong very, very quickly. I mean, Jamie Alexander just goes into the gas station for a bottle of water and doesn't come back. And I don't think that you would go to the absolute worst-case scenario as quickly as Gerard Butler does. He instantly calls the police. He instantly shouts at the 911 operator until he is connected to a police detective, played by Russell Hornsby, which, again... A police detective would not get involved within minutes of Jamie Alexander disappearing. And then Russell Hornsby becomes involved in this police case, which 
starts far too quickly because, you know, we need the plot to continue. And the way this vigilante quest that Gerard Butler goes on is treated, I think the idea is that we as an audience are supposed to say, yeah, Gerard Butler, go get your wife back and make her love you again. And that's the kind of thing that I think the filmmakers wanted us to feel. There's a situation where Gerard Butler is stopped by a police patrol. And for reasons I don't really think it's necessary. You know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to spoil this movie. Gerard Butler, at this point, he is stopped by a police patrol, has the kidnapping suspect tied up in his boot. So he clearly does not want to get stopped by the police. And yet the police, you know, stop him and they go through, you know, license registration, all that kind of stuff. And it's supposed to be this tense moment. You know, is the cop going to find the suspect in the boot? Or the trunk, I suppose you would call it. And eventually, when it becomes clear that, you know, the cop is about to open the boot, Gerard Butler runs off into the forest. And the police detective shoots at him, does not hit him. I mean, I'm guessing it was sort of like warning shots, but my instant thought was, this is Georgia. If Gerard Butler was black, he would have been shot dead so much quicker than what happens on screen, and he would not be allowed to escape. Later in the film, there are deaths which are directly attributable to Gerard Butler in this vigilante quest to rescue his wife. And yes, there's an excellent case for self-defence in these deaths that Gerard Butler is responsible for, but he is not detained, he is not questioned about these deaths. Essentially, it's a nod and a wink from the detective Russell Hornsby saying, hey, they were bad guys, good on you. That's not how justice works. That's how vengeance works, and that's what this is about. And he should be arrested for kidnapping. You know, the fact he had the suspect in his boot as he was stopped by the police, that is a clear case of kidnapping and false imprisonment. Gerard Butler should be arrested, and he should not be in a situation where he is allowed to seemingly reconcile with Jamie Alexander by the end of the movie. He should be if not dead at the hands of this traffic stop cop, he should be arrested for kidnapping and potentially homicide. although, as I said, excellent case for self-defence. Gerard Butler should be arrested by the end of this movie, and he's just allowed to get away with it because that's the way we want things to happen. And the fact that Jamie Alexander is even available to be reconciled with by the end of the film is also a little bit too convenient. There's one moment where I am absolutely sure that director Brian Goodman and writer Mark Fridman were trolling the audience who think, oh, this is a little bit like The Vanishing. There's a moment where it looks like The Vanishing conclusion is going to happen. And it doesn't. It's like a big fuck you from Brian Goodman, the director, saying, Ha ha ha, did you see what I did there? You thought this was a vanishing, but it's not. It's more positive, it's more uplifting. This is a movie where Gerard Butler kills people with impunity because he needs his wife back. A wife who, by the way, probably doesn't want Gerard Butler back. So what are we doing here? I mean, this is dumb, stupid, vigilante justice, and it does not work. 
Last Seen Alive is available for free on Sky Cinema. And if you want to watch it, yeah, you might have some brain-dead fun watching it, but it's just not very good. This is trash. Admittedly, it's not trying to be much more than trash, but it is just trash. And as far as I'm concerned, Last Seen Alive is just not worth it. And for me, it is a nay. The other film I watched on Sky Cinema this week is a film called Duel, which is written and directed by Riley Stearns, who has a couple of critically acclaimed films in his past. He directed the film Faults, starring his then-wife Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and he also directed the film The Art of Self-Defence, starring Michael Cera. And now he is back with this latest film, Duel, which stars Karen Gillan. And the title of this film is spelt D-U-A-L, although equally it could be D-U-E-L. It is a homophonic pun of a title. Because we are in a similar world to the Mahershala Ali film, Swan Song, which was out last year not to be confused with the other Swan Song film out this week. But as in Mahershala Ali's Swan Song, this is a world where cloning exists. And when you have a terminal diagnosis, you have the option of replacing yourself with a clone. The idea being that your friends and family can carry on living with this clone and you can quietly die from whatever is killing you. And Karen Gillan is a young woman who does get this terminal diagnosis and opts for this cloning process. But when this clone actually shows up, it turns out that Karen Gillan's boyfriend, Beulah Kowale, likes the new version better and Karen Gillan's mother played by Maya Paunio likes the new version better and after waiting around for 10 months for this mysterious disease to actually kill her Karen Gillan is told actually you're in complete recovery we thought there was 100% chance of you dying but we were wrong you are not going to die Well done, you can now decommission your clone. But the clone says, no, I want to carry on living. And because she has been alive long enough to classify as an individual person, there is an option of a duel to the death. A public spectacle which is televised of Karen Gillan and her clone going into an arena, or in this case, a high school football field, and only one coming out alive. And that will forever be the Karen Gillan who survived. This battle to the death is scheduled for a year hence. So original Karen Gillan immediately goes into training, learning how to fight to the death under the tutelage of trainer Aaron Paul, 
who has strange techniques of training Karen Gillan for this fight to the death, but maybe they will work. So, which of the Karen Gillans will survive? And will original Karen Gillan reunite with her boyfriend and mother, who clearly like the other version better? The one film that kept coming back to mind as I was watching this film duel is not Swan Song as I expected it to be. It was actually Yorgos Lanthimos's film, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Because the dialogue and the attitude of this film is so unusual, it is so mannered, it is so stylized, it is so deadpan, that it really creates an odd atmosphere. Initially, as I started watching this film, I thought, oh, Karen Gillan's somewhere on the autistic spectrum. She's got that vacant, detached attitude. But then I started realising that everybody else around her also had this same detached attitude, including this weirdo trainer, Aaron Paul. So everybody has this detached attitude. Everybody has this mannered, stylized, stilted way of talking, of communicating, which is added to by the fact that a significant portion of the cast has Finnish accents. And that includes Karen Gillan's mother. This film was shot during the pandemic, and Riley Stearns looked around the world for a country that had open enough borders and had a low enough incidence of COVID-19 that they could film safely, and Finland fitted the bill. So many of the people surrounding the main cast are speaking with Finnish accents, which adds to the whole disquieting, unusual atmosphere of this film. But even apart from that, there's some really odd things. I mean, we are introduced to Karen Gillan in a really interesting way. We first see her as she's driving her car through a drive through where she orders herself a ton of Mexican food and one drink. Being completely shameless about the fact, yeah, yes, all of these tacos and burritos are for me. She then goes home and proceeds to start watching porn on her laptop. And this is how we are introduced to Karen Gillan and the fact that her boyfriend, Beulah Koale, is distant, both literally and metaphorically. He's away on a business trip. They're having this conversation over video conferencing. And it's clear that Beulah Koale is kind of checked out from this relationship as is. So when the new Karen Gillan comes in and has a different attitude, likes some of more of the things that Beulah Koale likes. It reaches the point that the new Karen Gillan, the clone, is making out with Beulah Koale and indeed having sex with Beulah Koale in front of the original Karen Gillan. It gets that awkward. And this training, I mean, once it is set, yes, we, we are going to have a fight to the death. We're going to have a televised duel to the death between these two people who are essentially identical. 
they go to Aaron Paul and he has this detached, reserved attitude as well, including what appears to be the strangest and most straight-faced proposition for sex I have ever, ever seen. But this is the kind of film where that's actually kind of not what this is. I mean, these are so detached from reality, from each other, from humanity, that you kind of don't anticipate either the original Karen Gillan or Aaron Paul actually wanting to have sex, less than having sex with each other. But it's really interesting. And then the psychology, the mind games start getting involved. And the clone Karen Gillan has a different attitude and seems to have sort of like a, a workaround from this fight to the death. And all of it is really, really interesting. But it's very, very strange. I mean, all of it is done in this very detached, very mannered way. There are some truly, truly disturbing things which are brought up and in a couple of cases seen. And we just brush past them. Yes, that incredibly disturbing thing happened and we're just going to ignore it and move on. That happens a couple of times. There's odd, absurdist humour. One of the things that Aaron Paul does to train Karen Gillan is to show her a really, really cheap splatter horror movie saying, you know, you need to get used to gore, here's how you do it. And also, by the way, I've booked you an observation spot in an autopsy for a girl who looks disturbingly like you. So, you know, there's some very morbid, very strange stuff going on here. And it's very, very stylized. It's very, very mannered. I think... This is the kind of film that if you are on its wavelength, you might have a decent enough time watching it. If you did enjoy Killing of a Sacred Deer by Yorgos Lanthimos, I think that is definitely a film that I would point at and say, I am absolutely sure that Riley Stern saw that before writing the script for this and directing it in this way. So yeah, it's unusual, it's mannered, it's strange, and it's pretty good i mean it's available on sky cinema here in the uk you can just click the button and watch it and i think you'll have a decent enough time watching it so for me dual is a reasonably solid if somewhat strange a reasonably solid if somewhat strange meh and then we come to the streaming film American Underdog, which is a biopic of the NFL quarterback Kurt Warner, who I actually saw the tail end of Kurt Warner's career, and it makes me feel really, really old that Kurt Warner is eligible to have a biopic made about him. I mean, these are things which happened over 20 years ago, so I guess enough time has passed. This is a film which is directed by the Irwin brothers, who are Christian filmmakers and evangelically Christian filmmakers. So I did approach this film with caution, knowing that Kurt Warner is very devout and the memoir on which this is based is very much about how God helped Kurt Warner achieve all the things he achieved. So I did approach with caution, but I am intrigued enough by the story of Kurt Warner, and it is a good enough story that I did end up watching it. 
Kurt Warner, as played by Zachary Levi in the movie, is a talented quarterback who dreams of getting to the NFL. But it's an incredibly, and an infinitesimally small chance that Kurt Warner will actually make it to the NFL. He goes to a tiny, tiny university, the University of Northern Iowa, which is a second-tier school. In the 20-odd years I've been avidly following American football, only three players, including Kurt Warner, from the University of Northern Iowa, have had significant NFL careers. By comparison, a big southern university like Alabama or Georgia has six or seven players a year who end up having decent NFL careers. So, University of Northern Iowa is a tiny, tiny school. And he's not even playing because the coach doesn't like him. The coach being played by Adam Baldwin from Firefly, who in real life is a disturbingly right-wing religious nut job. But Adam Baldwin, the coach, doesn't like Kurt Warner, tries to force him to play in a way that is not natural to Kurt Warner. And this personality clash means that Kurt Warner, even though he was a very highly regarded high school player, just hasn't been playing much in university. So he knows that this is a virtually impossible dream, but he still dreams of getting to the NFL. But he also has dreams of romance. And in a local country and western bar, he meets Anna Packin. And even though there is mutual attraction between these two people, it is not the most ideal of circumstances. Kurt Warner at this time is still at university, at the University of Northern Iowa, and Anna Packin is a single mother with two kids, the oldest of whom is blind. And in the film, the actor Hayden Zeller is indeed blind, so representation for the blind community there. but. Yes, this single mother with two children, one of whom is disabled, doesn't seem the most ideal partner for this NFL prospect. But the dream will not die, even when he briefly ends up on an NFL team, which I'll be getting back to in a minute. He ends up stocking shelves at a local Iowa supermarket until the Arena Football League calls in the form of larger-than-life team owner Bruce McGill and off the back of a remarkably successful Arena Football League, I mean an indoor version of American football with a 50-yard field, incredibly fast, incredibly high-octane, it is described in the film as a circus, and indeed it was. I mean, unfortunately, the Arena Football League is now defunct, but for a while there was an indoor alternative to American football, and one or two players came out of it. But Kurt Warner is by far the most famous person who ever played in the Arena Football League. But off the back of that miracle of miracles, Kurt Warner gets a chance with the St. Louis Rams in 1999 with grandfatherly coach Dick Vermeil as played 
by Dennis Quaid and hugely innovative offensive coordinator Mike Marks as played by Chance Kelly. And the Mike Marks offense, which has gone down in history as the greatest show on turf, thinks that it's going to go to the Super Bowl with their quarterback Trent Green. But when Trent Green goes down injured, this completely unknown guy who five years ago was stacking shelves in a supermarket and two years ago was in the Arena Football League, starts in the NFL. And after a miraculous season, the greatest show on turf wins the Super Bowl. And yeah, by the end of his career, Kurt Warner had won a Super Bowl, appeared in two others, was a league MVP twice and was also voted Walter Payson Man of the Year for his philanthropy, which I'm sure he was much more concerned about. So he is currently in the NFL Hall of Fame. He regularly appears on NFL Network and is the lead analyst on radio for Monday Night Football. So, yeah, Kurt Warner has had an extraordinary career. Complete rags to riches, a total unknown who came from absolutely nowhere. Widely considered one of the best undrafted players in NFL history. And they made a movie of him. And it's a decent enough movie. I'm really, really glad that this is not as Christian as I feared it was. I mean, it barely comes up during the course of the film. Yes, Brenda, his wife, as played by Anna Packin, is very religious and... Zachary Levi playing Kurt Warner does follow his wife into this thing, but it's not a very, very big part of the film or of his life. So I'm glad it's not as Christian as I expected it to be. I think it's interesting that his remarkable run with the St. Louis Rams is actually a very, very small part of the film because I mean, that is essentially what we're here for. The fact that this unknown guy won a Super Bowl with the Mike Marks offense, the greatest show on turf. I mean, the way American football is played in 2021-2022 owes an awful lot to Mike Marks. He was one of the first dominoes to fall in the very high-octane, very pass-heavy NFL we are currently living in. Mike Martz can legitimately claim to have changed the way American football is played. The greatest show on turf was one of the most remarkable teams and so far ahead of its time. And the fact that Kurt Warner fits so neatly into it really says something. So the fact that that is a relatively small part of the film did surprise me. And... Yeah, I'm glad they didn't push certain things so I like the religion and like the fact that, yes, the eldest stepson of Kurt Warner is blind, but we see the real-life kid. There's some footage right at the end of the credits. I mean, there is a mid-credit sequence, but right at the end of the credits, there's a little coda with Kurt and Brenda Warner's real-life son. And he is so much more disabled than he is portrayed on screen. And I'm kind of glad they didn't push that as far as they did. 
I mean, the very fact they even cast a blind actor, I think, is very good progress. But there are hints here and there that this is a film made by evangelical Christians. The fact that Adam Baldwin is in this and some of the stuff he has said in real life is really disturbing. And there's one scene I want to go into, which I think explains an awful lot about this film, American Underdog. Just after Kurt Warner leaves university, I mean, he thinks he's going to get drafted. I mean, yes, probably in the fifth or sixth or seventh round, but he thinks he's going to get drafted. He doesn't, but he does get an option to play as an undrafted player for the Green Bay Packers and very quickly burns out. He's very quickly got rid of by a coach who we see on the little desk on his little plaque on his desk is coach mooch and anybody who knows the nfl knows that that is steve mariucci steve mariucci was the quarterbacks coach of the green bay packers but he went on to become the head coach of the san francisco 49ers for a reasonably successful run with the 49ers but very quickly transitioned into working for nfl network and steve mariucci or Coach Mooch, as he is affectionately known, is one of the lead pundits on NFL Network. So for years, was a colleague of Kurt Warner, who also worked for NFL Network. So we know that eventually these two people are going to work together on NFL Network. And another thing that this scene tells us about the film is that that actor who is playing Coach Mooch in that scene, is a guy called Brett Varvel. And if you look him up on IMDb, he has directed a pro-creationism movie. So these are the kinds of people we are dealing with, and I'm really, really glad that they didn't go the full evangelical Christian route. It only really comes up by the end of the film, and I think they do it in a really interesting way. I mean, I expected the story to end with the Super Bowl, the 1999 Super Bowl, where the St. Louis Rams beats the Tennessee Titans. And indeed it does, but it's real-life footage of that game, not Zachary Levi playing Kurt Warner. The Zachary Levi portion of the film ends in the first start that Kurt Warner made that season. Uh, and indeed the first win that Kurt Warner had that season. So the fact he made it to the NFL and won a game, that's the climax of the story. And then we have the postscript of the real-life Kurt Warner celebrating with his wife Brenda and celebrating with the Lombardi trophy in hands and praising Jesus. And that's the first time that we hear Kurt Warner, either in real life or as the character, saying those things. And again, this brings up another little Easter egg for people who know the Kurt Warner story. The last play of the 1999 Super Bowl between the Rams and the Titans has gone down as one of the most iconic plays in NFL history. The St. Louis Rams won 
on a remarkable individual effort to stop somebody scoring. Look it up if you like. I mean, it's readily available on YouTube. Kevin Dyson, one yard short. And I naturally assumed that that was going to be the climax of the film. Instead, what we get is an arena game that Kurt Warner lost on almost exactly the same type of play. So that was a little Easter egg. Oh, he's lost in the arena game, but he's going to win the same way in the Super Bowl. And if that is actually how that arena bowl ended, that's a remarkable coincidence. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's a little Easter egg here and there for, for people who, who know the story. and. It really is a remarkable story. I mean, it's a story that is, in some ways, a typical sports biopic. I mean, it has all the the peaks and the troughs of the story. It's all the more fascinating for being true. I really, really love the chemistry between Kurt Warner and Anna Packin. They are so cute together. One of the most adorable first kisses I have ever seen on screen. It's really, really beautiful. I mean, and the fact that without batting an eyelid, Zachary Levi instantly becomes a father figure and eventual stepfather to these two kids. And Kurt and Brenda Warner now have a total of seven kids. Yeah, those Christians, that's, that's what you get, isn't it? But anyway, it is a really adorable relationship, a really adorable family unit coming together. And a fascinating sports underdog story. All the more fascinating for being true. So yeah, it's pretty basic stuff. It is not as religious as I was fearing it would going to be. And I enjoyed myself. I mean, even if you're not familiar with Kurt Warner or American football, I think American underdog certainly has many of the tropes of the sports movie down perfectly and i think it's a decent enough watch so for me american underdog available on streaming platforms is a rock solid meh and the final streaming film i want to talk about in this particular episode is emergency which was released onto amazon prime video recently This is an expansion of a short film which won awards at the Sundance Film Festival a few years ago, directed by Carrie Williams, who has now directed this feature-length version, and also a film called R-Hashtag-J, or I think, I'm guessing that's how you're supposed to pronounce it, which is an updating of Romeo and Juliet for the social media generation. And this film, Emergency, is written by K.D. Davila, who, as well as writing the original short, Emergency, also just got Oscar-nominated. Her short film, Please Hold, was nominated for Best Live Action Short. It's a near-future-set satire on the bail system in the United States, and I haven't seen it, but from everything I hear, it's a rather pointed dissection of how the bail system works in the american justice system and it got oscar nominated and good for her so yeah kd davila writes this script for this feature-length version of emergency 
expanded from her and Carrie Williams' original short film, which follows the story of two black students in a prestigious university. Kunle, played by Donald Elise Watkins, comes from a Nigerian background, is very hardworking. He's been accepted to Princeton next year to pursue his master's degree in biology or biochemistry. I'm not exactly sure which. He works with bacteria and he's going to be doing a master's in it next year at Princeton. His best friend and roommate is RJ Siler, who is much more of a party animal. And he has a dream to be the first black person to do the quote-unquote legendary tour. At the end of the year, everybody's holding a party. So the legendary tour is you need to go to the seven biggest parties on campus in one night. And no black person has ever done this before. And RJ Siler is determined that he and his friend Kunle are going to do it. Donald Elise Watkins is very studious. RJ Siler is a party animal. There's a very pointed comment where get your priorities straight is mentioned. And for RJ Siler, that's partying. For Donald Elise Watkins, that's studying. But regardless, these chalk and cheese people are planning to do this legendary tour. So they go home to their student digs, only to find a white girl passed out on their living room floor. This white girl, Maddie Nichols, is blackout drunk, doesn't know where she is, stumbled into this house because the other housemate of RJ Sider and Donald Elise Watkins, Sebastian Chacon, forgot to lock the door. So this white girl has stumbled in and passed out on the floor. This does not look good. So RJ Siler persuades the other two, Donald Elise Watkins and Sebastian Chacon, we cannot call an ambulance, we cannot call the police. We are three non-white people with an absolutely blackout drunk blonde girl in our living room we are going to get arrested if not killed for this incident so reluctantly they agree okay we won't call the police but we will take this girl to the hospital and wouldn't you know it everything goes wrong they can't get her to the hospital for varying reasons and eventually that includes the fact that this white girl's sister, played by ex-Disney Channel star Sabrina Carpenter, has a tracking app on her sister's phone and is following this girl and the three non-white people, constantly throwing the worse. So, can these three non-white people survive the night, which is not a guarantee? Can they make everybody realise that we are not doing anything untoward to this girl, we just want to help her. And can their friendship survive the night? I mean, these are best friends who've been years, friends for years, but it's reaching the point where they need to go in their different directions. And what does that mean? 
So, yeah, it's a film about racial politics. It's a film about friendship. It's a film about college. And I think it's rather special. What I find fascinating about Emergency is that this is using the framework of the crazy college party night movie, something along the lines of Booksmart or Superbad. I mean, yes, those were high school movies, but it's the same kind of vibe. Things are changing. We need to have one last great night together. And all these little incidents keep getting in the way. I mean, it's certainly not helped by the fact that R.J. Siler is high out of his mind. I mean, there's a specific line of dialogue that you've been drinking and smoking since 3pm. You are not making the best decisions right now. But, despite the fact that R.J. Siler is high as a kite and completely paranoid, he does have a point. And there's these little moments here and there which make you realise, oh, there is some sense to these paranoid ramblings. Like the fact that he says, right, before we move this white girl into our car and take her to hospital, we need to change. We need to be not wearing hats and we need to not be wearing hoodies so we can survive the night. There's a very telling moment where they get in this car and they drive past a sign prominently displayed that says, Neighbourhood Watch. And I thought, oh shit, we're about to get Trayvon Martin here. But it doesn't quite go that badly. But what does happen is eventually these three non-white people are observed by a white couple who in the cast list are credited as Karen and Mr. Karen. Which, again, very, very pointed. And as this situation is resolved and the three drive off, we see that the car has been hiding a Black Lives Matter signpost on their front lawn. This is Karen and Mr. Karen, and they are clearly, these non-white people should not be here, and yet they have a Black Lives Matter sign on their front lawn. At every point, it is a natural assumption that these three black people, or non-white people, are up to no good. The more that Sabrina Carpenter follows her sister's phone, she eventually sees in the distance, sees glimpses of these three people seemingly doing nefarious things, and instantly, constantly, fears the worst. My little blonde sister is in the care and control of these three non-white people. They must be a threat to her. That is the automatic natural assumption. And at every point, these little moments keep getting brought up. And eventually I started realising, while this uses the structure of the crazy madcap college comedy, like Superbad or Booksmart, That's not actually what this is. This is a film which is using that structure, that very recognisable, very well-known structure of the crazy party night movie, to not be a comedy, to make actual points about racial politics in America. 
And once you get that switch flipped in your mind that this is not a comedy, this is actually using the structure of a comedy to do something different, I personally thought, okay, this is a really, really good way of doing it. It's sort of like sugarcoating a pearl. I mean, come to us. We are a crazy comedy like Superbad or Booksmart. And once you're inside and once you're engaged, then we're going to switch on you and say, ha-ha, we're actually going to make some points. You need to sit down and pay attention to this. And yes, you might say that that switcheroo is disingenuous, but personally speaking, I found it really, really effective. And the ways that these black people, particularly you know, RJ Seiler and Donald Elise Watkins, the way they interact with the world and the way they interact with each other, their relative levels of you know, quote-unquote blackness are constantly in question. And this very studious, very upright Nigerian background biochemist or biologist and this party animal who, yes, is intelligent, he got into this university, but he cares much, much more about getting high and getting drunk than he does about his studies, or seemingly does anyway. And their relative experiences and their relative accusations, you know, you are not black enough, that is brought to bear. And there's all these little ways in which the black and the white worlds interact with each other. One of the opening scenes is these two black students going into a seminar which is being given by a white English woman. And this white English woman in a seminar is constantly t- using the N-word because she wants to talk about you know, what makes this word so special. But it's kind of made the point in the film that it's not her place to say that. It's not her place to discuss that. And yet here we are. Well, yes, this lecture has trigger warnings on it, but here is this white, non-American person using the N-word. And as RJ Sider says at one point, there's one thing, there's only one thing we ask white people not to do. You don't use that word. That's the one thing we ask. And yeah, I mean, that that is kind of the point. Uh, I also found it very notable that Donald Elise Watkins has a crush on a white girl who is also in this seminar, and that white girl is called Bianca, which I can't help feeling was deliberate. But anyway, this is a fascinating movie. I mean, there's one tiny little thing which infuriates the fuck out of me. When Donald Elise Watkins finds this white girl passed out on his living room couch, he says, all right, I'm first aid certified. I'm going to check her vital signs. And he checks her pulse the wrong way. He uses his thumb, which you shouldn't do because the thumb has its own pulse. If you're first aid certified, you should know that. That pissed me off intensely, and I added that to the goofs section of IMDb, but regardless. That irritating little detail that they got wrong aside, Emergency, I thought, was a brilliant, brilliant movie. I think, arguably, it has too positive an outcome 
I think in a lot of ways this has a lot of similarities to another Amazon Prime video which was out earlier in the year, Master, which used recognisable tropes of a genre, in Master's case the horror genre, to make comments about the black experience of college. And Master had a much darker tone and a much angrier tone and a much sadder ending. Whereas I think Emergency wanted to to make its points, but also wanted these characters to be okay. I mean, yes, these characters do end up in very, very dangerous, very troubling situations. But it could, and maybe should, have been so much worse. Relatively speaking, I think these young men lightly and a tiny bit of me says it was too easy it should have been a bit harsher it should have been a bit harder but equally i don't want any of these kids ending up dead so yeah it's it's a really powerful piece of work and i really really did like it particularly if you see it in parallel with the other amazon prime video release master which came out a couple of months ago i think it's a great double feature both available through amazon prime having different approaches to somewhat of the same subject matter but if you accept that this is not a laugh out loud comedy it's only using the structure of a laugh out loud comedy i think emergency has very very valuable things to say and i really really liked it so emergency available on amazon prime video is for me a yay coming attractions it's a very very busy week this week and that's not even including the fact that this week i will be watching the queer film swan song which was technically out last week and there's also preview screenings of the horror film the black phone which i am intending on seeing and if that fits into my schedule this week i might well see that as well so That's already a couple of cinema trips, and there's plenty more where that came from, because this week, the blockbuster is one I'm actually interested in that is released in the cinema, and that is the new Pixar movie, Lightyear. As far as I can tell, this is supposed to be the movie that little Andy saw at the beginning of Toy Story, and that's what he wanted to get the Buzz Lightyear toy from. Not a bad idea for a movie. It's all like a tangential prequel slash sequel slash whatever. But yeah, why not? It's Pixar. Pixar usually delivers, even though this one looks a little bit more corporate than usual. But Lightyear is definitely one I will be checking out. Also released this week is the new film Good Luck to You, Leo Grant, which is directed by Sophie Hyde who did 52 Tuesdays, which I did like, and Animals, which I really didn't like. And it's actually written by Katie Brandt, who I think is a very, very talented comedian, but this is her first feature-length script. And, yeah, it sounds fascinating. It stars Emma Thompson as a 55-year-old... I'm not sure if she's widowed or divorced, but she's single. And she decides she wants some excitement and... Quite frankly, she wants some sex. So she hires a sex worker played by Daryl McCormick 
and they meet up together and, as far as I can tell, have sex and talk to each other. Judging by the trailer, it looks like it's mostly a two-handed film, so, yeah, that makes me intrigued. But, yeah, Emma Thompson and a sex worker. Intriguing. So, yeah, I will be checking out Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. There's also a curious film I've come across and is getting a cinematic release called The Lost Girls, which is apparently based on a novel and is an expansion on the universe of Peter Pan. Taking the premise that Peter Pan promised to revisit Wendy and Wendy's family for generations to come. And what are the consequences of that for four different generations of this family to constantly be tempted away by this boy who never grows up? And yeah, that's an angle I've never really considered before, but it does sound interesting. So yeah, Lost Girls, or The Lost Girls rather, gets added to the cinematic list. As does Pleasure which is a film I've been very, very curious about since it premiered at last year's Sundance Film Festival. It's by a Swedish director called Ninja Thyberg and revolves around the porn industry. As a young Swedish girl goes to Los Angeles in order to become a porn star and, of course, gets corrupted and all that kind of stuff. But... The overwhelming majority of the cast of this film, Pleasure, is real-life porn stars. Many of whom I'm familiar with, many of whom are actually impressed with their acting abilities as well as their physical attributes. So, yeah, a film about the porn industry, where the overwhelming majority of the cast are porn performers... I'm really, really fascinated by that. So yes, I do want to check out Pleasure, which technically has been given a cinematic release, but it's only one day. So by the time this comes out, the Wednesday cinema screenings of this film will have been and gone. And unfortunately, I won't be attending that because I'll have to go all the way over to Bristol and it's late at night. And it clashes with my intended viewing of Swan Song. So I won't be able to see it at the cinema, unfortunately, but apparently it is going to be released on Mubi this weekend. So that is technically a film which is out this week. And I do really want to check out Pleasure. Being given a limited cinematic release, but primarily available through Apple Plus TV, is the film Cha Cha Real Smooth which won the Audience Award at this year's Cannes Film Festival and is the second film from director Cooper Rafe. And I caught up with his first film earlier in the year, the film Freshman Year, which is also known as Shithouse, and I was actually rather impressed with. And Cooper Rafe directs in and stars as a man who is making ends meet as a party organiser of bar mitzvahs. And at one of these bar mitzvahs, He meets a mother, played by Dakota Johnson, who has her autistic daughter in tow. And they did actually cast somebody on the spectrum, a young actress named Vanessa Burghardt. So, unlike Sia and, or was it Music, which got 
ridiculed for being a film about autism with no autistic people in it, Cha-Cha Real Smooth actually does have somebody on the spectrum in a leading role. And yeah, the relationship between Cooper Rafe and Dakota Johnson seems to be the centerpiece of this movie. And I was very impressed with Freshman Year, so I do want to check out Cha-Cha Real Smooth, particularly since it won awards at Sundance. And that is primarily available through Apple TV+, Plus, but does have limited cinematic showings, which I will be heading over to Bristol in order to watch. Also on the streaming end of things, there's a Disney Plus movie called Fire Island about a group of gay Asian men who travelled to notorious homosexual hangout Fire Island in order to have some fun. And apparently it's a plot largely based on Pride and Prejudice, which is weird. And it's also weird that this queer Asian film released in Pride Month is also available on Disney+. Plus. So yeah, I'm curious about Fire Island. And I'm also curious about a movie which I believe and I hope is going to be released on Shudder this coming weekend. I haven't been able to confirm that it's being released in the UK on Shudder, but there's a stop-motion animated film called Mad God. Now, this is done by legendary special effects artist Phil Tippett, who worked on things like Jurassic Park, you know, the actual physical parts of Jurassic Park and Robocop and things like that. He's a stop-motion artist of long standing, and he started this project Mad God 30 years ago, and when he saw the finished product of Jurassic Park, he threw up his hands and said, well, CGI's made me obsolete, I'm just not going to bother. But in the mid-2000s, he was encouraged to pick it back up again, got a Kickstarter together, and apparently he has now finished this feature-length animated movie, Mad God. And judging by the trailer, it looks weird. It's got this disquieting, disturbing, steampunk, squelchy, possibly even Cthulhu kind of horrors in it. And yeah, it looks really, really fascinating. And the fact it's a labour of love from this legendary figure in the special effects world makes me really, really curious to see Mad God. And I hope that here in the UK we do get to see it on Shudder this weekend. On Netflix this week, there is a sci-fi thriller, I guess you'd call it, called Spiderhead. This is actually directed by Joseph Kaczynski, who only just recently had Top Gun Maverick released into the cinemas. Top Gun Maverick was put on the shelf for so long thanks to the pandemic that Joseph Kaczynski had time to film and release a completely different movie to be released only a couple of weeks later onto Netflix. But Spiderhead does look kind of fascinating. It stars Chris Hemsworth and Miles Teller. Miles Teller being also in Top Gun Maverick in a near future world where prisoners are given the option of being part of medical experiments in order to shorten their sentences and when Chris Hemsworth offers convict Miles Teller this option and gives him a drug which supposedly induces feelings of love weird psychological shit starts going down and yeah looks like 
an interesting blending of sci-fi thrills and philosophical quandaries. So I do want to check out Spiderhead on Netflix. And the other film on Netflix which I'm curious about is an Argentinian film called The Wrath of God, which is probably what I'm going to be watching when I head over to Bristol in order to watch Cha-Cha Real Smooth and The Lost Girls. But The Wrath of God sounds fascinating. It's about a young woman who becomes convinced that the famous author she works for has been systematically killing her family for years and heads off to an investigative journalist in order to prove this. Now, I'm not sure if this is going to be a film about conspiracy or if it's a film about delusion, but either way, it sounds fascinating. Trying to prove that this world-famous author you work for has been killing your family that sounds really, really interesting. So I do want to check out The Wrath of God. And still on the Netflix list, as well as the myriad documentaries I still need to get to, we have the South African bank hostage movie Silverton Siege, Rebel Wilson's broad comedy Senior Year, Adam Sandler as a washed-up basketball scout in Hustle, and a film about the Rwandan genocide, Trees of Peace, with four women trapped together and talking to each other as they hide from danger. On streaming platforms, as well as the hopeful release of Mad God onto Shudder, I do want to check out A Banquet on Shudder, where Sienna Guillory is concerned when her teenage daughter stops eating and says she has a higher purpose there's also the seemingly rather cheesy thriller the ledge which is also available on netflix i'm fascinated by chippendale's rescue rangers on disney plus i also have the streaming film superior where a pair of twin sisters interfere in each other's lives and it apparently gets all lynchian i'm still curious about the israeli queer film the swimmer about a young man trying to qualify for the israeli national swimming team when uncomfortable homosexual attraction starts getting in the way so yeah lots and lots of stuff to get to many cinema trips to make this week and in the background i'm still doing the groundwork for the next video I want to release, which I've been hinting at a little bit. It's another one which compares a foreign language film with its American remake, one of the worst examples of that particular process. So that's going on in the background as well. But yeah, plenty to be getting on with in the next standard episode. One yay in this particular episode, the Amazon Prime movie Emergency, which pretends to be a broad, outrageous comedy, but actually has some really interesting, really valuable things to say. If you accept that it's not going to be laugh-out-loud funny, and it is about some uncomfortable racial politics then I do think Emergency is definitely one to check out, and I do thoroughly recommend it. So, for me, Emergency was a yay. 
and it's the one yay in this particular episode, which brings me to the end. And all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay Nay Omer presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast.gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>